Welcome back to the Based on History podcast, and we're going to get to the segment that we call Things John Got Wrong. And this will deal with the things I got wrong in the Tombstone episode. So the first thing that I I didn't really get it wrong, although I did forget to mention it in the podcast, I posted about it on Instagram. I thought it'd be something cool to talk about during the episode. Then we got rolling, and I completely forgot about it. And that is Wyatt Earp's Buntline Special Peacemaker. And this is a super famous pistol. It's always associated with Wyatt Earp. And it's a Colt Peacemaker with a super long 12-inch barrel that was presented to him and other lawmen by Ned Buntline. This was a tall tale told by Ned Buntline. And that was a pseudonym for a dime novelist named Edward Zane Judson. And he told this story and variations of the story associated with prominent figures of the of the Wild West. He told about Buffalo Bill Cody. Um, at the time, he was talking about Wyatt. He presented five of these to Wyatt, Bat Masterson, Bill Tigman, Charlie Bassett, and Neil Brown for their services as lawmen. He claimed this in 1876. So this is you know before the OK Corral, and then he claimed that that's the weapon that he used at the OK Corral and the Vendetta Ride. Not only do we know what weapon Wyatt was using during the OK Corral, we know that none of these pistols ever existed during this point in time. None of the other lawmen ever had them. People have tried to track them down. They've gone to the Colt manufacturing records. There's no evidence of this pistol or these pistols ever existing in any way, shape, or form until later on when their popularity through these dime novels and Western lore Colt started producing them. And there's other companies, uh, Uberetti, which is an Italian uh, replica gun maker. They make a, a Ned Buntline Colt peacemaker and things of that nature. But there's no historical evidence of this gun ever existing. In the movie, there's this dramatic scene where Wyatt's decided he's going to help his brothers. And he walks into his room and he opens up this you know box. And inside is the is the Buntline special peacemaker. But there's just no real historical evidence to support that why it used it, and that it even existed in the first place. The next thing that I got wrong is a small thing, but I got it wrong nonetheless. And that is that Wyatt Earp died in 1929, 19, not 1926. So he lived a little bit longer than I had thought so. And I'm sure I got more wrong. If there is, feel free to comment on the Instagram page, like and subscribe, follow us on Instagram, Follow us on all the podcasting platforms that you rate and review. It really helps us out. So without further ado, let's dive into this episode. This episode is brought to you by Alexis Night Photography. Alexis is an award-winning lifestyle, brand, and wedding photographer based in the Cotswolds, England, specializing in headshots, family shoots, and event photography. Alexis has over 20 years experience. You can find her work and contact her for all your photography needs at alexisknight.co.uk. That's alexis, K-N-I-G-H-T, dot C-O, dot U-K. We are also brought to you by Design Weaver Textiles. Based in the heart of the Cotswolds, Philippa Weaver of Design Weaver Textiles is a hand-tufted rug designer and maker with a passion for British craftsmanship. With 20 years of experience designing carpet for high-end hospitality, she is uniquely suited to bring a fully bespoke design and make service to you, taking care at each stage to provide a beautiful and truly unique work of art to your interior landscape. 
You can find her on Instagram at Design Weaver Techs. Again, that's at Design Weaver Techs. You're listening to the Based on History podcast. All units, Irene. I say again, Irene. And we're going to kick him in the ass. We're going to kick the hell out of him all the time. And we're going to go through him like crap through a goose. You tell him I'm coming. And hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me. That they may take our lives. But they'll never take our freedom. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is that why you're here? All right. Welcome back to the Based on History podcast. As always, I'm your host, John Nidick, and joining me is my wife, Alexis. Hello again. And here we are on episode three, and we're focusing on the movie Zulu. As always, We watched the film the night before we do the recording, so it's fresh on our minds. We're going to talk a little bit about the movie before we get into the history. So, Alexis, you hadn't seen this movie before whenever you watched it with Mm. me. Okay, yes. I've watched it twice with you now. We've watched it twice now. Mm -hmm. Once for the podcast and once a while back, uh, just for fun. But uh, I had seen it when I was growing up. What were your initial thoughts on the movie, just from a cinematic experience? Um, okay, well, I'm not going to go on about how much I love the cast <laughs> <laughs> this time like I have the others. Um, that wasn't what drew me to the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the location was beautiful. Yes, it is beautiful. Uh, it's an old movie, so... Yeah, it's filmed in 1964. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it wasn't, you know, it didn't have that kind of, like, epic feel of graphics or anything like that. No, yeah, it does have, to me, it has an epic feel, but not from, like, a CGI or graphic standpoint by any means, yes. Um, I don't know, to be honest, I think the first time I watched the movie, the main thing that I remember feeling from that movie was that I was really behind the British... Or do we call them the English? They're the British at this point. Okay. I mean, there are Englishmen there, but there are it's Welshmen the... there as well. Okay. There's Welshmen there as well. Okay. Yeah. Um. So I remember being really behind the British, and every time they killed Zulus, and every time they kind of defeated them in some way in the battles, I was really happy for them. And I remember feeling like the British were clearly the good guys, and the Zulus were clearly the bad guys. Mm-hmm. But watching it this time round, um, I had listened to your little mini-series beforehand. Yes, the the Based on History <laughs> mini, in case anyone was wondering. They can go and check that out before. Which if you case? haven't heard it, stop the podcast right now. <laughs> go listen to the Based on History mini, then come back and finish the rest of this. So this time I went into it from a different headspace and realized how messed up the whole situation was 
um, and how wronged the Zulus were. And I felt mm-hmm. that the British shouldn't be there and they shouldn't be interfering as they were. So, uh, so this time I didn't feel like I came in into it with quite the same mind frame as I did the first time. And I also realised how heavily biased the movie was towards the British because it's all filmed from their perspective and like you get to know all of the characters and you see their personalities and hear some of their stories and you kind of quite get you get to know them whereas the Zulus you don't you don't have any of that from their side so they're just kind of portrayed as these savages right um so I think you kind of like it kind of puts a good guy bad guy at the end Mm -hmm. I guess there's that respect for how well they fight and how sad it is that mm-hmm, they've lost so mm-hmm. many and you can kind of see that the british start to think hang on this is this is messed up i don't feel good about this yeah it's funny that you say that because it's filmed as an anti-war film from the get-go right it's meant to be anti-imperialist it's meant to be okay well i take it took it as the opposite and i felt like if it was anti-imperialist it would show some of the human kind of personalities of the Zulu people and it would make you kind of feel like there's something more to them than just like another man and like thousands of men just like coming to be shot at and right well, there's, that have, you there's know, things we... that happen in the movie that don't happen in real life and those are to give more respect to the okay. to the Zulu okay the main characters regardless of who's being focused on more the main characters of this battle, even in history, are going to be the British soldiers. We don't know that much about the Zulu warriors. So if you're going to retell this story about this particular battle, there are prominent Zulu mm-hmm. Zulu people in you know overall. But about this battle, there's really only one prominent Zulu. He's not... He doesn't do a lot of the fighting. He is there. He is the commander of, of the army. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about him. But if you're going to retell the story, it the main characters are going to be British. And when you look at the some of the writing in this movie, it's written with a very anti-war I see that. Slam. I see they're like not gung-ho and desperate for blood. Um, mm-hmm. They don't they don't want it and they want to retreat and but they're being ordered to stay and fight and it's kind of crazy. So they do the best that they can do for that situation right. that they're put in. Of the movie. It was a pet project for him. And he's a liberal socialist in his personal life and set out to make an anti-war, anti-imperialist film from the get-go. And they filmed it on location in South Africa during Apartheid. And they had to be very careful with how well they treated the extras because they, and some of this is true and some of this is not, I was trying to dig around fair, but like there were rumors saying like by law, they're not allowed to pay the extras the same amount that they're paying some of the white extras and and things like that. And some of that turned out to not be true. Some of it did. I, I couldn't figure out all of the truth and things like that, but there's definitely some truth to them not being able to treat the black extras the same and then them trying to figure out different ways around the law. So I'll give you an example. They weren't able to pay the black extras the same as the white extras. So the production company donated like cattle 
and food and things like that to the Zulu extras to compensate for right. the lack of pay. And there uh, was rumored to be like a Parthian Afrikaner agents infiltrating the movie production company to make sure that these oh, like these you know laws were being followed and, and things like that. So throughout the whole production, it's an anti-war, anti-racist sentiment throughout the film and the people making the film from the actors to the producers to the director were trying to make it okay. anti-racist I, as, okay, they, as I they could. That. I guess, well, yes, um, but at the end of the day, it's the British army fighting the Zulus and so they can't pretend that that didn't happen. Uh, uh, and right. they can't pretend that they, you know, they're also they telling a right to be there. Right, they're also telling a, you know, based on history mm -hmm. story yeah. Yeah. and the fact that the British fought the Zulu in South Africa at this place and at this time actually happened. You can't mm -hmm. get around that no matter how socialist, no matter how liberal, no matter how anti-war you are. If you're telling this story, yes, okay. you're going to have war and battle. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I served in the army and everything like that. So I, I'm not a huge fan of anti-anti-war films because I don't like the way they portray soldiers usually. But when you tell a historical movie from a war or battle standpoint and i think if it's done correctly in some way shape or form they're all going to be slightly anti-war right when you when you watch the movie you know there's a, i'll give you an example when you watch saving private ryan or band of brothers or this movie and it tells the story of what happened in war and it tells it the truth you can see the carnage and the sadness and the reality of it but at the same time you don't have to destroy the men who who were there the everyday soldiers mm -hmm. so you can you can you can uh, honor the heroism of the soldier you can mm -hmm. honor the heroism of the event and without glorification of battle and unlike what we'll, we'll say saving private ryan versus like an arnold schwarzenegger 1990s or 1980s action film or Sylvester Stallone type action film where they're spraying bullets and it's gung-ho and they're mowing people down and mm -hmm. it's a hoorah type of thing mm -hmm. versus Saving Private Ryan which has those same elements in it but when you watch it you're you, you're not getting this sense of like overtly war mongering praise mm -hmm. that's the feeling I get when I watch the movie Zulu it is an anti-war film. It was that from the get-go. They set out to make an anti-war film. But when I watch it, I don't get this like super, super in-your-face, war is bad kind of a mm -hmm. thing. I get the war is bad, but we can still honor the men who were there doing what they had, had to be done to protect their buddies and their friends, regardless of where they were, yeah. and regardless of what the politicians back home had done, and regard you know, that, that kind of yeah, a thing. Yeah, it's just, I guess... Um... They really show show all of the British guys as good guys. All of them. They kind of they're all likable characters. Mm -hmm. Um and I just felt like we could have seen a little bit more of that from the other side. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe there needs to be a reverse. Well, exactly. That's reverse, what I was thinking. Maybe. I wonder what it would have what the reverse movie would be like. It would it would probably be an even more anti war film because you'd be watching a lot of the people that you just got to know at the beginning of the film mm -hmm. die. <laughs> yeah. So I remember watching it when I was younger and I loved it then. 
it was kind of the start of my kind of not love but curiosity towards South Africa and and that kind of history you know the Anglo Zulu and the Boer Wars and 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 things like that. I didn't know that much about it when I because I watched the movie when I was pretty young, and I saw this and I was like, oh my goodness, this is. When I was young, I thought, oh, this is really cool. I want to learn more about this. And so the movie Zulu was kind of my springboard into South African history, which is cool to look back and you can kind of see where that kind of started from. So I, I love the film. You know, Michael Caine, it's one of his earliest roles. And you, you think about Michael Caine now. He's a massive, massive movie star, but at the time he's got like mm-hmm. second, third billing on the movie poster, and it says like, and also Michael Caine scribbled tiny on the you know on the movie poster, mm-hmm. and it's one of his first starring roles, and you see him in, and even this like he's not that big of a star, but when you see Michael Caine in this movie, he he steals the the screen in every scene that he in. He's this kind of cheeky. Mm-hmm. British. Well, he's not quite the Michael Caine we know now, though. Is that he? is that is true, but he's very cheeky. He's very kind of snobby, upper elite British, and he plays it. I think he plays it great, and that's at the start of the film. And then mm-hmm. by the end of the film, you like him. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's seen the horrors. How would you think he is in this? Like in real life, in this, he's got to be in his mid twenties. Okay, I think he's pretty young. Yeah, I mean, I think that covers the movie, the movie fairly well. So we'll dive into the history, and like always, we'll get some of the nitpicky things out of the way, and then we'll dive into the kind of the timeline. There's not a ton of nitpicky things in this movie. Right off the bat, I'll just say that overall, they get a lot right in Zulu. Not everything, but they get a a lot right. So some of the nitpicky things that they do get wrong are, is the location. So it is filmed in South Africa, but it's not filmed where the actual Rourke's Drift was. It's 50 miles, 60 miles apart from each other or something like that. I can't, I'd have to go why back Why is that, that they didn't film where So I, I don't exactly know why they chose this location over the true location, other than the location that they chose is a fairly famous landmark in South Africa and it's just this beautiful super iconic landmark and it's in the Drakensberg Mountains and it's called the Amphitheater and it's that massive cliff mm-hmm. that you see mm-hmm. in, in the background and it's along the Tagila River along I mean they're on the the Sotho border so you know in South Africa there's that landlocked little tiny country that little yes that's Lesotho. And this area, this national park, is right on the border of the Natal, Natal Zulu County or area. I'm not exactly sure what, how they call it. And the border of Lesotho. And it's this beautiful, beautiful, rugged, mountainous landscape. And I don't know why they chose this other than it's... When you see it, you know they're actually in South Africa. Mm-hmm. But it's not the, it's not the the area that they fought the battle in is much more open and, and flat. It's still hilly, it's still rugged, just like a lot of South Africa is. But it's a more open plain with some rolling hills versus these jagged cliffs mm-hmm. and okay. and massive plateaus. 
So not not a huge one. They're still in South Africa. They you you still get the feeling of it for sure, but not the exact location. The other thing, little nitpicky thing, is it has to do with uniforms and weapons. So their uniforms are pretty good. They're not perfect. They're a little bit more dressy than they would be. Oh, didn't you say that it's they aren't legally allowed to wear uniforms the correct way, or is that just the American? Oh, that has to do with American films and okay. like modern representation of uniforms. Of current universe. Of current of, of current uniforms. So they they could get it all right if they wanted to, and for the most part they do. But little things like some of the things that they wear would be like for their dress uniforms versus mm -hmm. for like their field uniforms. So like one of their the the actor who play portrays Color Sergeant Bourne. He's the guy with the big mutton chops. Yep, yep. He's got his medals on his uniform the whole time. He, he wouldn't be wearing medals. Not only would you not wear your medals in battle, you wouldn't even wear your medals in every day okay. unless you're going to like a ceremony or some mm -hmm. something like that. Their helmets that they wear, they all have these seals mm -hmm. on them. But the gold. The gold, yeah. yeah, seals. They wouldn't be wearing those in the field either. And then some of the braids and, and things like that that they have on there. So they were more dress, dress helmets that they were wearing. They're wearing the more dress helmets, yeah. Right. And, and those are small things, mm -hmm. right? Over the Overall, their uniforms are correct. The British are wearing the red coats. They're in the style that they would wear. They're wearing the dark blue navy pants with their pinstripes. Their boots are correct. Most of the, what we call their webbing or their kit, like the leather straps and buckles and mm -hmm. pouches and things like that, mostly all correct. So I, I don't have a lot of... What about the Zulus? The Zulus are pretty correct, too, even down to their shields. And we'll we'll get to that in a moment. But they did a lot of good... A lot of good research. They had a lot of local Zulus um, contributing to the film to help them, and they listened to them, and they got a lot right. Some of the weapons they use in the film are wrong, especially the pistols that the officers use. They're using World War II pistols. Okay, and, and this is in 1879. This is in 1879. Okay. They look similar, so it's not a huge, huge, big deal. The those British British pistols all kind of have that same similar look. I don't know how to describe it, but it's like skinny and like a fat handle and it kind of juts out at the mm -hmm. top. They all kind of look like that. But the pistol that they're using is from a later date and time. It's not that big a deal, but it is technically wrong. Mm -hmm. A few of the rifles that they use in the in the movie are wrong as well. So what about the Zulus? Sorry, I've interrupted you, but the, right. the guns that the Zulus were using... Mm -hmm. Where did they get them from? Was that from the big massacre? Did they take them from So that? there's a debate there's a debate about where the Zulus got their guns from. As we'll talk about here in just a little bit, these Zulus were present at the Battle of Insan Luana that's portrayed at the beginning where the British mm -hmm. get massacred. They didn't take part in most of the battle. They were the reserve corps of that of that army. And so there's some debate as to were they there and they picked up the guns from some of the soldiers, even though they weren't really fighting. We know that the Zulu did have rifles, but they were muskets and they bought them from other people and things like that. So I read some different things. But what they think is that some of the rifles are old, old muskets that the Zulus have bought. And yes, since they were definitely present at the Battle of Insan Luana, although they were not engaged in the main part of the battle did pick up some of these guns from the battle of the British and then head off. Mm -hmm. They, they did have rifles where they're just not a hundred per a hundred percent sure, but 
most of the rifles are correctly portrayed as the type that they would have. It's called the Martini Henry, and it's a breech-loading, lever-rolling block rifle. And it's got this lever on the bottom of it. You pull it down, it opens the breech, you put the bullet in, you close the lever, mm-hmm. and then you then you can shoot. Right. And that's the one way at a time. One at a time. There's a few scenes where you see the British have bolt-action rifles. And I think they did this because they don't think they had enough actual Martini Henrys for the movie. And so they supplemented some some extra right. bolt-action rifles that look similar to them. I don't hold it too much against them. Because like I said, they get a lot... They get a lot right. Were there no guns around at this time um, that shot more than one bullet at a time? Yes, there are. So this happens in 1879. The if you like the American West, mm-hmm. like the cowboy six shooters that we talked about in the last episode and mm-hmm. stuff like that, they've all been invented by by this time. Okay, and they're what the six bullets. Six bullets. You know the yeah. cowboy action rifles where you mm-hmm. cock the lever over and over and over again. Those have been invented by okay. this time. Militaries. Throughout the mid to late 19th century and even into the early 20th century, like world through World War One and even creeping up on World War Two, did not like repeating rifles or rifles that could fire bullets quickly because they thought it was a waste of ammunition and it would mean the soldier wouldn't aim as much and he could just fire bullets. So that's expensive. Bullets, are, bullets cost a lot of money. So as far as armies are concerned, you see armies reluctant to adopt multi-firing weapons all the way up until World War II and and past World War II. So multi-shot capability, we'll call it, like lever actions Mm -hmm. and bolt action rifles are already invented and available. But armies always have a problem moving on from the past and things of that nature. Now... That being said, this Martini Henry rifle is state of the art at this time. It's invented in the 1870s. It's already had it, this is the Mark II version, so it's already had some improvements. It's a pretty good rifle for this time. Yes, it only has one-shot capabilities, but it's a powerful rifle. And overall, due to the lever actionness of it, all you do is pull the lever, slide the bullet in, close the lever, fire. You can most soldiers under combat conditions can fire the Martini Henry. 12 rounds a minute, which is extremely fast for this time period, considering what they've evolved from, which right. is like uh, muzzle loading mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and things of that nature. So, although it's not like the peak of technology, you know, rifle technology at this time, it is a pretty good rifle. Let's dive into the story now, shall we? Mm-hmm. So, if you listen to the Base on History mini, we talk about the the timeline leading up to this point. We're going to cover just a little bit of that, rehash just a little bit of it of that uh, before we get into the battle itself. So the British are in South Africa. They're trying to create a confederacy of South Africa. The man trying to do that, his name is Henry Bartle Freer. He is the high commissioner and governor of South Africa. He's been looking for ways to start imperial wars to get british imperial troops which are the red coat troops that we see in the movie into battles to conquer these independent areas so that they can bring them under british rule and form the south african confederacy that he wants to be the ahead of 
did it with the Hosa, right, in the Cape, the Ninth Cape Frontier War. He's incorporated the Boer Republic of the Transvaal. They did that peacefully, but that will lead to multiple wars later on down the road. And now he's doing, trying to do it with the Zulu. What he does with the Zulu is he, and I mentioned this before in the, in the podcast, is that he issues these ultimatums to the Zulu king. The Zulu's king name is Quetzalcoatl. He issues these 13 ultimatums to Quetzalcoatl. And when you read these, they're ridiculous. It's basically dismantle your way of life. They, they have to disband their army. They have to pay hundreds and hundreds of head of cattle for these supposed offenses. They have to turn over some of their chieftains to be tried in the Natal Cape Colony courts and things like that. They're a free and independent nation at this point. So it'd be like, mm-hmm. it'd be like, you know, Queen Elizabeth telling the president of France, like, hey, if you don't want us to invade you, you need to get rid of your army. And France is like, well, we're our own country, so we can do what we want. <laughs> you know, so the, the king of the Zulu ignores them. And this guy, Free, what's Freer? Freer. Freer. Um, he basically set these terms because he knew they were ridiculous and exactly. unacceptable and that it would start war. 100%. Because he wanted that. Exactly. He, he knew as soon as he wrote these down that this would spark a war. Mm-hmm. So he's going to claim that there's these, there's these, that they, excuse me, he's going to claim that the Zulu have wronged them through these made up things. Some of, well, some of them not made up, but border, just small mm-hmm. border disputes and things like that, that aren't really that big of a deal that aren't really to be called for international war. And then he's going to be like, okay, I've got my excuse. I can issue these ultimatums. I can send them to him. And when he refuses it, I have justification for starting the war. Mm-hmm. And he does. And it goes exactly how he thinks it's going to go. He issues these crazy 13 ultimatums. There's a certain point in time where he says you have to respond to these. It's ignored. And he says, okay, now we're at war with the Zulu Kingdom. And the British general who's in charge of this war, his name is Lord Chelmsford. 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 Thank you. Chelmsford. <laughs> Chelmsford. <laughs> and he was the general who was in charge of that ninth frontier war against the Hosa. And when you look at how he went about that battle, he basically tries to replicate that exact same thing with the Zulu. They split up. He's, he's going to do it with five columns, but then he decides to do it with three columns. He splits his army up into three columns. They're going to go out into Zululand, and then they're going to spread out across the country and then converge on the Zulu capital of Ulundi and then capture it and capture the king and try and end the war. The reason they want to do this is because with the Hosa, it was hard to bring them to battle. It would turn into a guerrilla war, and they had they were hunting them all over the place and things like that. So he's thinking, if I can just go straight to the capital, capture the king, I won't have to worry about these forces. Or, you know, if we can't if we can bring them to battle, it's great because we're going to beat them. We've got the rifles, we've got the mm-hmm. cannons, and everything like that. They've got spears and shields. They're going to try and do hit and run tactics. Well, the Zulu are completely different than the Hosa. The Zulu kingdom was reformed a few generations before by a man named Shaka Zulu. And the Zulu themselves were a fairly small tribe. 
but they reform their military, they reform their military tradition, and they start conquering all these local tribes, incorporating them into the Zulu kingdom. Now, Shaka is dead by this point, and it's his half-son who is the king of the Zulu nation. But the military tradition is still the same. What's a half-son? A half-son? Yeah, what's a half-son? Or, excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) He's his... He's his, like, half-nephew or something like that. Yeah, (laughs) half-son. He's his half-son. He's trying to figure out. (laughs) He's only half me, but he's half... He's half some other people. I guess all sons are technically half They are. Sorry. (laughs) He's like his his half-nephew or something like that. (laughs) Um, yeah, they're, so they're related, but the struggle for the crown, he's not a direct line, is, is what I was trying to say. Okay. <laughs> Half son. Um, so, Quetzalcoatl is related to Shaka, but he's not his direct line. But the military tradition of the Zulu is much more aggressive than the Hosa. The Zulu have reformed their army and you see this in the movie they were using the cowhide shields and these little short these mm-hmm. little short spears most of the other african tribes are using broader bigger shields and longer longer spears so um, so the cow i mean do the cowhide shields even stop arrows or bullets coming through them well they don't stop arrows or bullets but what they are what they are good at good at blocking um spear thrusts and things of that nature so it's dried cowhide. So it is pretty tough. Yeah, okay. But only at short range, you know, human strength okay. things. And shade from the sun. And shade from the sun. Yeah, <laughs> you only get a sunburn. So when the Zulu go into battle, it's all about mobility and speed. Numbers. So when the Zulu are fighting other African tribes... They're amazing. They're amazing. Mm. And they conquer a lot of territory and they incorporate a lot of tribes into into their people in the movie they talk about this they show the the bull head formation right they've got the head you got the horns you got the loins it's all about encirclement in close quarters combat closing with your enemy as fast as you can so that you can get in with the short spear and do a whole lot of stabbing right and but they never really get that chance do they no and that's a that's a big thing mm-hmm. so the the zoo also have some big time uh, I guess you would say, like, incentives for doing well in battle. If you lose, the army that loses, their wives and children are brought out into the center of the town and beaten to death. And then when that army gets back, they're beaten to death. My goodness. So, you rarely ever see a Zulu army retreat. They either are victorious or they're annihilated. Now, it does happen. Right? They do retreat, but there are some big-time incentives oh for not, not losing a battle. Right. So the British are on the move in Zululand, and they set up their... Well, first, let's establish where Rorks Drift is, because this is where the movie takes place at Rorks Drift. Mm-hmm. Rorks Drift is along the Buffalo River in Natal Colony. And the Tal Colony butts up to Zululand. Mm-hmm. And the Buffalo River is the border between the Tal and Zululand. 
Rourke's Drift is on the Natal side of the Buffalo River. Mm-hmm. The Chelmsford and his army set off from Rourke's Drift. Now they're in Zululand. So in the movie, they're building that bridge across the river. Mm-hmm. That is the border. They're building a bridge from British-controlled territory into Zulu-controlled okay. into Zulu-controlled territory. So these three columns set out: all Chelmsford, the main column in the center, and then two other British columns on the left and right flanks. Mm-hmm. They're going to converge on the Zulu capital. They don't listen to their intelligence. They're overconfident again, and they they're about ten miles away at a place called In San Luana, and it's Kind of a flat open area with a mountain and then a couple other mountains mm-hmm. in the in the distance. But overall, it's kind of a, a rolling hills. Mm-hmm. Chelmsford leaves a contingent to hold that area because there's reports of Zulus off a few miles away. He takes his some men and they go off. So there's roughly between 1,800 and 2,000 British and British colonial forces at this place called In San Luana. They don't do the what what they're supposed to do, so Chelmsford actually put forth some battle requirements. I mean, is is that how the British usually roll? How they're always they usually go into things overly confident, and they right at the beginning the mistakes are made, and then they realize, oh, actually, um, this is going to be harder than we thought, and then they bring everybody in and annihilate everyone. You just it just, kind of happens like this everywhere, doesn't it? You, you just described British imperial <laughs> wars during this time. We're overconfident, something bad then, happens, and then we come back full force and annihilate the them. The book I was reading that was based in India, it was all happening the same way over there as yeah, well. It happens in India, it happens in South Africa, it happens in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> something really, really bad happens where a bunch of British soldiers get killed and then the British take it seriously mm-hmm. and they send in the army and they do it the right way, the way they should have done it. You know, from mm-hmm. a from a war standpoint, we can argue whether they should be there or not. But from a battle standpoint, the way they should have done it from the beginning. At this battle of Insan Luana, they don't listen to their intelligence. They don't set up their defenses the way they, they properly should. And this massive army of Zulu attacks them. There's between fifteen and twenty thousand Zulus against eighteen to two thousand British army. Like I said, it's not all British. So, so sorry, say that again. Say the numbers. Like, between fifteen to twenty thousand Zulus, mm-hmm. and there's eighteen to two thousand on the British side. Okay. Now, Eight, eighteen to two thousand. Eighteen hundred to, to two thousand. Okay. To two and how many on both sides died? So, the British kill a lot of Zulu because they have the rifles, and so their rate of fire is able to kill a lot of them early on in the battle. And the Zulu f- fight in formation, so they're in close quarter. Mm-hmm. What the British run into is the problem that leads to the defeat at in San Luana is their perimeter was too big. They push out their men too far so there's gaps in between them is the main thing that allows the Zulus to infiltrate and break their barrier and get in amongst them and start actually being able to fight them hand hand to hand because for a while the British are able to keep them at bay with their rifle fire Mm -hmm. they kill a lot of Zulu so that's kind of like is my maths right is it it's about 10 to 1 more or less yes Mm -hmm. okay 
So they have these gaps in their line. The other thing that contributed to it that the British claimed, which wasn't as big a deal since we found out, but did contribute for sure, is the bullet distribution, the ammunition distribution to the troops. It was done by regiment, and only certain regiments could get bullets that were assigned to them, and only then this regiment couldn't get these bullets when they needed it because they had to wait their turn. The bullets were screwed in these boxes that had to be unscrewed, and and it it's a it's an excuse the British used to say why we lost the battle, and it did have an effect for sure, mm-hmm. but not quite as big an effect as they think the not having proper defenses like. Their wagons in a circle mm-hmm. for a, to form a so wall. So we are talking about the massive massacre at the moment. We're talking about We're the massive. We're not mass- talking about Rook's Drift. No, we haven't gotten okay. to the movie yet. We're just catching right. up to it. Yeah. So they they didn't build defenses that they could fall back to. They pushed their perimeter too far out, so they've got mm-hmm. gaps in their lines, and their ammunition distribution is is not good enough to where men are running out of ammo and they can't mm-hmm. they can't fight. When you combine all of those things together. It ends up being a massacre, mm-hmm. and something like fifty men survived from okay. the British army. How did they even survive? They ran, right? And they ran. Just to clarify, fifty of the British soldiers survive. Less than fifty. Mm-hmm. We think there's somewhere between eight hundred, around eight hundred, maybe a little bit more, actual British soldiers. The rest of them are native contingents. Whether they're you know, Natal boars mm-hmm. or black levies, things things like that. You have the native Natal contingent. You've got the Natal carabiners. You've got the... Okay, so there were more that survived than 50 that not, were fighting for... Right. For Still them. not a lot. Okay. Still not a lot. But of, of the, we'll just say 2,000 to make it easy. There's only, I mean, maybe a couple hundred. Mm-hmm. That, that survived this battle. It is, a, it is a massacre. Less than 50 actual British people, which... In, in the terms of Imperial Britain is the main thing they're going to look at, right? right? Less than 50 men survived this battle. It's considered one of the largest defeats of a Imperial army by a indigenous, you know, indigenous okay. army. So the reason that we're going from Insane Luana to Rorkstrift is that the reserve corps of the Zulu army is not engaged in the battle like we were saying earlier about those rifles they want glory as well and another thing about the zulu military tradition is you can't get married until you've gone to war so some of these men have to fight to be able to get married now the zulu corps that fights at work drift some of them are made up of married men some of them are made up of single men but regardless of whether they've been married or they're single none of them got the glory of the battle none of them got the kind of booty that you get from raiding and things like that. Mm-hmm. Their part, they're called the the Ulundi or the um, let me the Undi. Excuse me, I misspoke. They're called the Undi Corps. It was the reserve of the Zulu army. They were sent to position themselves between the retreating British army and their supply line to catch any des- not deserters but retreating uh, men and things like that. So they're not necessarily involved in a lot of the battle. When the battle is over. They know that Rourke's Drift is not that far away. And so they know there's not very many men there, and they know it's a supply depot. Mm -hmm. So they're going there to raid and get some more glory, get some some booty, and you know, so that they can so they can come away from this feeling good about themselves. The problem with this 
is that the Zulu king Quetzalcoatl gave direct orders for the Zulu army to not go out of Zulu land. He knows that the British are the aggressors here. Mm-hmm. And so his his war goal is to just defend Zulu land. But Rorke's Drift is still in Zulu land, isn't it? Or is no. it on the wrong side of the river? It's on the other side of the river. The river is oh, the right. okay. The river is the border. Okay. And so they're technically defying orders of their king. The Undi Corps is led by Quetzalcoatl's now his half brother. Okay. <laughs> and they're not really good on good terms. So he kind of just says, screw it. We're going to go off, get some glory, get some booty, and do our own thing. So they start heading towards Rourke's Drift. Now we kind of get to where we, the movie starts. Movie start, well, when the when the battle kind of you know starts. Mm-hmm. They're building the bridge. Now, now we're talking about the movie. In the movie... Lieutenant Charge building that bridge across mm-hmm. the river, mm-hmm. and he sees the two riders riding down the hill, so he knows something's up. This is true. In real life, two men from in San Luana rode to Rorkstrip. Most of the survivors made their way to a place called Helpmaker or Helpmaker because it was more fortified and there were more troops there. It was farther away than Rorkstrip. So they knew that the Zulu wouldn't go there. They're not going to go that deep into Natal territory. Mm-hmm. Rourke's Drift has about a hundred, well, at this time, about 350 to 400 men there. Mm-hmm. Between the British regulars, which is under Lieutenant Bromhead, which is Michael Caine's character. Mm-hmm. There's roughly a hundred of them. Okay. Under B Company of the 24th Foot. Right, okay. And they've got some native, some native levies there. So how many's Chard got? Chard has zero soldiers. Oh right. He's an engineer. His oh, I thought he was um, because he was a higher rank than Bromhead. So he he is a higher. Well, they're the same rank, but he was commissioned. Oh, he was commissioned first. Okay. He was so, commissioned so first. So he's the boss. Oh, he's yeah. the boss. His soldiers, Lieutenant Chard's actual soldiers that were assigned under his command were at Ensign Luana, and they were all killed. Oh, okay. Surprisingly, Chard was at Ensign Luana earlier that day receiving orders and was sent back to Rourke's Drift. Okay. So he was there a few hours before the battle took place. Do they talk about that in the film? Not in the film, no. Okay. So Lieutenant Adendorf stays at Rourke's Drift, and defensive preparations begin. They start with what are called mealy bags, which are like the big sandbags that you see them yes. building the, the fortifications. When you look at Rorkstrift, you've got the hospital, the storehouse, the cattle crawl. Then those those are all just stationed around. So mm-hmm. they build those mealy bags to form a circle between those buildings to make a fortification. The fortifications start around noon. A couple hours later, about 100 men from the native Natal horse arrive and they show this in the movie right those horsemen mm-hmm. show up yeah in the movie they say we just came from in san luana we're not staying and then they they, they ride off mm-hmm. and lieutenant charges charges saying you know, stay we need you stay we need you and things like that yeah and brom bromhead doesn't say anything yes in reality 
Those men stay. Okay. And they volunteer to stay. So why why does the movie change that? Uh, to make it more dramatic, I okay. think you know to to show that these these British soldiers are all alone. Mm-hmm. And and overall they are. We'll we'll get to that in just a second. But these. So hang on. You said that Bromhead had a hundred men under him. So and that what there were three hundred men. At Rockstriff, so who are the other two hundred men? The under? native contingents, like so in the oh, movie. In the oh, movie I they, see. Yes. In the okay. Movie they and they all those, leave. Those African levies that are working right, for right. Okay. In the movie, it's like twenty or thirty. In reality, it's a few hundred of them. Okay. So the the horsemen that arrive are in the movie. They all made to look like boars, and some of them would have been boars, but they were the native Natal contingent or native Natal horsemen. So most of them would have been black. Okay. The officers and the NCOs would have been white. Some of the NCOs would have been black as well. Mm-hmm. So they, they kind of misportray them in the in the movie. But they stay. They're low on ammunition. They've just barely survived this massacre. But they say, we will stay and fight as long as we can. So they go and they position themselves on the hill overlooking Rourke's Drift in the, mm-hmm. in the surrounding area. The hill's known as the Oscarburg. And they are advanced lookouts. Defense preparations continue. And around 3, 3.30, I think, is when they start hearing and seeing the Zulu off in the distance. Shortly after that, the horsemen... Because this all happens in, like, 24 hours, doesn't it? Yeah, so... From the, the 22nd to the 23rd or something like you're that. You're exactly right. Oh, very good. Very good. Someone, <laughs> someone was paying attention. I was paying attention. Yep. Around 4.30, <laughs> the horsemen start fighting with the vanguard, which is like the advanced column of the zoo. These horsemen fight them until they basically run out of ammunition. They get on their horses, and they ride back as fast as they can to Rourke Drift, and they tell Chard, the Zulu are coming... We're not staying, and there's no order you can give us to make us stay. We're mm-hmm. we're riding out of here. We have no more ammunition. And, and so that wasn't real. That no, that's not real. So I was looking into this. One of the reasons that they didn't have any ammunition, because this is a supply depot. There's a ton of ammunition there. Is that they were carrying uh, carbines, which is a smaller rifle. It's a different bullet than what the actual British regulars are using. And they didn't have that kind of ammunition at Rourke's Drift. So they couldn't just grab some more bullets and go back back to fighting. they also just been in a massive battle. They just got away with their lives. And they volunteer to stay. And they fight again until they're almost all out of ammunition. And then they retreat. It's, it's pretty... Yeah, pretty hardcore. Pretty honorable. Mm-hmm. So they, the horsemen do leave. So I get why they kind of portrayed that, right? It doesn't have that big of an effect on the actual main battle of Rourke's Drift. Mm-hmm. But I, I wish they would have portrayed that. And I kind of wish they would have portrayed it as the native black men to show like, hey, they were fighting at, you know, as well. Now, what they do get right is when these horsemen leave, that's when the rest of the native contingent runs away. Okay. But in the movie, like I said, it's like 20 or 30 men. In reality, it's And like it's a, because of the pre... The- the um, priest. Well, we'll get to that. Yeah, that's a. I'm glad you brought that up. He is a real character. Mm-hmm. His name is Otto Witt, and he's a missionary in that area. Rourke's Drift is actually his. He owns it, and he's leased it to the British All Army right. 
to use. He is out in the area, and he comes down and says, hey, there's a whole bunch of Zulus coming. My family's in a farm not far from here. I'm going to get them out of here. And then he leaves. Okay. That's it. That's his... He's, he's not there so, spouting Bible verses. So and why did they do that, then? To uh, make it more dramatic, I guess. Okay. You know, I, and a reason to send off the contingent. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But when the horses leave, the native contingent does run away. Okay. And it's hundreds of them. And they, and they all flee. So now... Before the main Zulu army has even got to Rourke's Drift, it is as portrayed in the movie. It's just those British okay. soldiers versus between three and 5,000 Zulus. So what, 100 soldiers? And they say between 100 and 140, because they're not 100% sure, because it's a hospital as well. So there are some wounded men. They weren't really counting those men. You know, it's, it's more or less 100 able-bodied men plus a few more men... In various capacity. There are some native men there that aren't wounded or sick or anything like that. But there are some sick men. So we'll just we'll say 140 to you know make, make it easy. Around 4.30 the Zulu army gets to Rourke's Drift. And they attack. They attack the south wall. Which is a smaller wall than... <laughs> this is sound kind of the south wall is smaller than the north wall, so it's easier to defend because okay. less rifles can cover it, and, or you can put more rifles on it and cover. It. Mm -hmm. yeah. The south wall goes between the hospital and the storeroom. Yeah. Now the Zulu attack it, and they realize they can't get over it. Mm -hmm. And start so, to go around it. They start to go around in it. in that horn shape that the guy explains. Yes. So the the horn shape never really comes into play in Rourke's Drift because it's a fixed. It's a fixed... In the movie, they kind of talk about it. That mm -hmm. They're trying to do the horns of the buffalo and attack right. from this side and that side. It it doesn't really work that way because they're behind fortifications. Right, okay. Sure. And the Zulu have run into fortifications before, and they've gotten decimated. There was a battle in 1838 against the Boer Trekkers called the Battle of Blood River, where the Boers form their wagons into what they call a logger, which is like a, a wagon fort, and is very similar. Tens of thousands of Zulus take a couple hundred boars in this wagon logger, and the boars decimate them. I mean, I think the boars lose like three men total, and the Zulus lose like three to 5,000 men. So they know attacking fortifications is not good for their right. style of fighting. There's three to 5,000 of them. There's only 100-something British. They think they're going to go in there. If they can break through the walls, mm -hmm. they can infiltrate in their hand-to-hand combat. They're going to be able to, to beat them. The problem that they run into is that the melee bag wall is too high. They can't get over it. And so they're probing around all over the place. They, so overall, they mainly attack the north wall because it's wider open area. They can get more troops into that area. And because it's a longer wall, the British can't man it as right. as well. So their firepower is more dispersed. The main thing that really is stopping from a weapon standpoint is the bayonet that the British have on their rifles. The bayonet is what kills a lot of Zoo. Now, obviously, the rifles do as well. 
but the Zulu run up to the wall. And the Zulus haven't got anything as long as that. Exa to You're exactly right. Get them back. They they have to close in and get to you to fight you with their short stabbing right. spears. But they they're having trouble getting over the wall, and the British rifles and bayonets are longer, and the British are trained it. They mm -hmm. the they're yep. disciplined and trained with that bayonet, and so they have a stabbing spear and a wall that the Zulus can't are having a hard time overcoming. So the this fighting starts around 4.30, and it's continuous. They're attacking all over mm -hmm. in various ways. Now, in the movie, they portray that the Zulus get up on the hill, and they start shooting down at the, at the British with those rifles, whether they're from Ensign Luana or Old Muskets and things like that. We know that they did have some Martini Henrys, which is the rifle that the British are using, because we have some reports that say that the the Zulus were firing with these rifles and they were firing too high because the sights on the rifle, which is this little lever that you push and drag along the top of the barrel, mm -hmm. that when you aim, it elevates or lowers the actual aiming point of your barrel so that you can shoot farther to arc the bullet mm -hmm. to go farther. The Zulu thought that this was a power gauge. And then if you crank it all the way up, the rifle is stronger. So they're oh, right. okay. they're shooting way, way too high because mm -hmm. the, the, the aiming point has been raised up completely. Because right. they're untrained and they don't know. Yeah. And like a lot of indigenous tribes, they're a little superstitious with with things like that. So someone told them, oh, this makes it super powerful. And or maybe they saw the British troops doing it and saw that the British troops could shoot farther. And so they think, oh, my goodness, the reason you can shoot farther is because it's more powerful because they they did, mm -hmm. you know, they did that, which is really not exactly how that rifle works. But that being said, they do wound some British soldiers and kill some British soldiers from the rifle fire. And the rifle fire is kept up throughout the battle. It's nonstop from the time they start to shoot until the very, very end. They can't break through. They can't break through. Now, around 6 o'clock, so we've had about an hour and a half of nonstop battle. The Zulus start to break into the hospital. This is where I'll, they really start to kind of break into the fortifications. There's been a couple times where they've been able to break in before, but the British reinforcements, not reinforcements, but like, in the movie, they show Michael Caine's character, Lieutenant Bromhead. He has a little platoon. And anytime the Zulu break through, they go and they plug those gaps. Things like that were ha mm -hmm. were happening. And they're able to push them back and reform the line. Mm -hmm. They realize, from, from people being wounded, they know they're not going to be able to hold this line anymore. So during the preparations, they had formed several lines that they could fall back on. So from the overall perimeter to a smaller perimeter to a smaller perimeter. Around 6 o'clock, they realize they're not going to be able to hold the outer perimeter. And so they're going to fall back into their secondary position. Mm -hmm. This does... Into a much more enclosed area. Exactly. So there's only 140 of them total. They've already got some wounded. They've already got some killed. What the smaller position does is it allows them to mass their firepower, and and they don't have yes, as so they they go on those different levels, of shooting. So not yeah, so not we're not, not quite there okay. yet, right. but more or less the same principle. Yeah, they're in a smaller area, and they can shoot out a ton of rounds 
Right. And so they they fall back to this secondary area mm-hmm. towards the storehouse and the cattle crawl. Well, the hospital is left by itself. The Zulu break into the hospital. In the movie, they shows this. They're coming in through the roof, through the roof and through the and through doors. the doors. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And this is where you see a ton, a ton of hand to hand combat. And the movie, for the most part, gets this right. They get they get a lot right in the hospital. The Zulu break in. The British soldiers realize it. They barricade the door, and they start getting their bayonets and things, and they start picking through the walls. And they start ferrying the wounded soldiers mm-hmm. through these holes in the wall. And they've got soldiers posted up on the windows and the firing holes. They're coming through the roof. All of these things. There's there's something like 9 or 11. Or, so there's like 11 or 15 or something like that. Wounded soldiers in the hospital. And they carry them all through. And they only they only lose like two. Two hospital patients that are bedridden that, can't, that actually right, okay. cannot fight. And in the movie, the main guy that they focus on in the hospital's name is Hook. Mm-hmm. And in the he's a real character. In the movie, they portray him as a drunk and as a bad soldier. Mm-hmm. He's under arrest. You know, they, they he doesn't he's not supposed to have a rifle. He's kind of a sleuth. He doesn't like to work. He's lazy. In reality, he was like a model, a model soldier. Oh, he got the Victoria Cross, didn't he? He did get the Victoria Cross. Almost all of the Victoria Crosses that are awarded at this battle go to men who are fighting in the hospital. Almost all of them. In the movie, they some of the men that they portray doing things outside of the hospital were actually more... They were doing things outside the hospital, but they were also in the hospital as well. All of these men, they, they, they fight off the Zulu, they rescue these men... They get out of, of the hospital and they carry all of these sick and wounded men from, from the hospital over to the secondary position, okay. either the storehouse that's being used as like a surgery mm-hmm. or along the wall for defense. They they chisel through like three walls and through four rooms, yeah. carrying these men, fighting these Zulu. One man actually is left behind. He ends up hiding in a closet. Until nightfall, covers himself in soot and ash, so he blends in more. Sneaks out and then goes oh back in. Goodness. Goes back into the British line afterwards. Oh my goodness! Did they didn't show that in the movie? Did they? They did not show that. I wonder they why didn't. they didn't do. They that would have been brilliant. It would have been. Movie. Yeah, it'd been crazy. I wonder why they didn't. So the Zulu set fire to the hospital at the end. In the movie, they show it, it's like a rifle that's right by the straw. I'm, mm-hmm. They're not exactly sure, but somehow they're pretty sure the Zulu are the one that set fire to it. Basically, okay. to show like, hey, the noise that the Zulu make throughout when, like, whenever they're fighting throughout the whole movie, the mm-hmm. whole of the fight, you hear that noise. Would they have done that? So, I mean, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Like a swarm of wasps or something. I'm not a hundred percent sure if they would have made that noise or not, but. The Zulu in the movie are portrayed by the Zulu people of South Africa. Most, I was reading, most of the the extras that form the Zulu army are descendants of people who were Zulu warriors from this time. One of the Zulu advisors on the film was a Zulu princess, and she described the battle from her ancestors to them, and supposedly they choreographed the battle for the movie from what she said. Right, okay. The, in the beginning of the movie, 
they're at the the mass wedding the the uh, missionary and his daughter are at that wedding mm-hmm. and they're sitting next to the king that's supposed to be king Quetzalcoatl the leader of the Zulu okay Zulu kingdom at this time he is a descendant of the actual king Quetzalcoatl so it's pretty wow. okay it's pretty cool that they mm-hmm. that they did that and like I said, they got some of the shields right. Their attires pretty. They they look they look like they like they would have. Okay. You know, pictures exist during this time. There's pictures of Zulu warriors from this time. They look almost exactly like they like they do in the film. The shields, the spur, uh, the spears. Excuse me. So, would you assume that that noise that they were making would have happened? That they wouldn't have just made that up? I, I would assume. So. I, I would assume so. I don't know for sure. I don't know for sure, but I would assume that that's. But I mean, you hear that throughout the whole movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Zulu language is the most widely spoken language in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So they're speaking Zulu. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that they still know the war chants and, mm-hmm. and, and, and things like that. So I don't know a hundred percent, but you know, it, it, it could, when it could very well be historically accurate, that's exactly how they could have, could have acted in the movie. They're breaking through the hospital. They fall back and they, in the movie, they show this scene where they, they do the front rank, rear rank, front rank, rear rank, and they fire and they fire and they step mm-hmm. forward and they step forward and they mm-hmm. step forward mm-hmm. and they clear out all of the Zulu. And then they fall back. There's a little bit of a break and the Zulu attack again. And that's when the cattle chain, you know, there's the mm-hmm. one soldier who went to go check on the calf. And sadly, the, it's always, I always find it so sad, but the little calf got killed. And then he runs back to his position and he forgets to chain the lock, and the cattle break out. And just as the Zulu are gonna about to break in, they get trampled by the by the cows and things did like that. Did that happen? So it did happen, but not quite like that. There was a stampede of cows that we know of, but it wasn't quite this like life saving life saving thing. Mm-hmm. The Zulu were there to get booty and reward for their you know in the in the in the war. And one of the ways that the Zulu and these African tribes in this area measured their wealth is through cattle. The Zulu were, were the same. So they see these herds of cattle, and they go in there. They're finally breaking through, and they steal all the cattle and herd them off. And that's what stops the attack, is the Zulu greed for wanting wanting wow. booty. So it's not quite okay. quite like they portray it, but it does, kind of, okay. it does kind of happen. Then we get to the hospital burning and night falls and they mm-hmm. talk about in the, in the movie you see there's a uh, one, two of the soldiers, the, the one who sings and the, the farmer one who likes the calf, they're talking you know, they're kind of buddies. Yeah. And he says, how many times have they attacked this night? And that's true. After the hospital fell around six o'clock, they fall back to the smaller area. Night begins to set and the Zulus keep up the attacks all night long up until about two o'clock in the morning the zoos are attacking this area in concentrated effort not thousands and thousands but hundreds and hundreds of zoos at a time and the british are beating them back every single time around two two thirty in the morning the attacks stop but they start they or they start shooting again harassing fire from the hillside in the zoos lasts until about four o'clock in the morning and then the fighting essentially stops. In the movie, it shows the you know talks about the fighting in the night. It shows some random attacks and things like that. But in the morning, the Zulus do one big attack where they show up. The Zulus 
are doing one of their war chants and the lieutenant charge says to the the singer you know can the welshman do any better and there's a sing-off between the british and the zulu and they're singing the song men of harlot which is a famous welsh song this didn't happen for a number of reasons it's a super cool scene in the movie it almost gives you chills yeah, when you yeah. when when you see I, I love the scene it just didn't happen it didn't happen for a number of reasons. One, so, so, I mean, were the Zulus singing their war song? I mean, they may have been doing chants like we had said earlier. There's no real evidence of this. Okay, because that song sounded... I, I loved that song that they were singing. It's cool. Yeah. It's a cool scene. So I just thought, oh, they must have been singing that. I'm sure they sang... It, but that mm, kind of... Very haunting, that, very cool. Yeah. The kind of rap-off mm-hmm. that, that they have didn't okay. didn't happen. And it didn't, have, it didn't happen... Well, I can tell you the the British weren't singing Men of Harlick because in the movie they talk about this being a Welsh regiment. They're all Welsh. Yes. The 24th Regiment of Foot was not a Welsh regiment until 1881. This takes place in 1879. It's a British regiment made from people around that Welsh border, Mm -hmm. but they're mainly English. There were Welshmen there, but the majority were British. Okay, English. Or, yes, yes. Yeah. So they're, I guess, you're right. Yeah, they're all British. Yeah. But majority were English. Then the next is Welsh. There's also some Irish. Mm-hmm. And then there's some, some other, some others. They, they couldn't, you know, they don't know the nationality of everyone in the regiment. But they're mainly English. The reason they do this in the movie is because throughout the rest of its history, it is a, Wel- a Welsh regiment. They're called the Welsh Borderers. And Minaharlik is one of their songs. Right. And Minaharlik is a... I'm not really sure when the song was written, but it's a song about the siege of the uh, Harlot Castle in medieval times, or late medieval times. And these Welshmen hold out for a really, really long time against the English besieging... Okay, so the Englishmen would not be singing this song. The English would probably not be singing the no. Minaharlik. <laughs> no. But it is a cool song. It is a real song. Mm-hmm. The version that they sing in the movie was written specifically for the movie. It's okay. not some of the original. Interesting. It's become part of the song now because this movie made this song okay, kind of wow. famous again. There's a I Welsh. I wonder why they didn't choose a different song though. Because it was, it's there, it's the regimental song of the 24th Regiment of Foot, but just later on. I see. Okay. And so they're paying okay. homage I to see. this regiment. They just weren't fully Welsh at Yet. at this time right yeah. so regardless of whether they were a sing-off they mm-hmm. wouldn't they, they wouldn't have sung them in the parlor but it's an awesome scene i love it okay. then they attack and they fall and they push the british back even further to this little tiny redoubt in the middle and that's where you see them on the different levels behind the sandbags yes and it's just this massive massive mm-hmm. massive that did happen they got pushed back to this little redoubt and they're all huddled in this tiny, tiny little fort. Mm-hmm. That, but that, hap- and then the guys at the bottom with the guns don't even have any barrier between right. them and the and yep. the Zulus. There's three levels of them. Mm-hmm. There's guys kneeling, there's guys standing, and there's guys behind the melee bags. In reality, it was basically a circle, and they're being surrounded on all sides by Zulus attacking them. The only were they not showing it as a circle in the movie? It's kind of a half circle. Okay. In the movie. But that did happen, but it happened after they evacuated from 
the hospital right before right before nightfall. Oh, uh, okay. Not the next day. Not, Not the, the next day. day. So in the in the movie, it's kind of the last yes. big thing in the morning, and and that's you know the climactic last mm-hmm. holdout, mm-hmm. and that did happen, and it was the last climactic holdout. It just happened. The, Right before the night. And then there was a lot more shooting and fighting. Exactly, yeah. And then yeah. throughout the night, they still fought and held out held out that area. They just kind of rearranged it yeah, to make it... I prefer it how they rearranged it in the movie. It's more dramatic. Yeah. It's more dramatic. In the morning, in reality now, not just the movie, in, in the morning, they're, they think it's over. Right, at 4 o'clock, the, the harassing fire... Or, sorry, 2.30, the attacks stop. 4 o'clock, the shooting stops. And they don't see any Zulu at all. They think it's over. Around 7 o'clock in the morning, the Zulu appear on the hillside. Mm-hmm. Again. And the British... Are, and there's a lot of them. And there's still a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And they can't believe it. So they man their positions again. Uh, but they're giving up at this point, aren't they? Uh, isn't um, Bromhead and... The other guys say, "Oh no, the um the Boer guy that came Ardendorf. along." Yes, aren't they both basically saying, "Oh, we're doomed." Yeah. So in the movie, they are okay. Yeah, and and they may they may have felt that way in real life too, mm-hmm. but in real life, they show up on the hillside, and they just leave. Okay. And that's it. In and real then, life, they do that. They in real life, up, in real life, they, they do show up. Okay. But then they just turn around and leave. There they is... don't start chanting the um, the salute to them. No. Okay. Nope. Does that does not happen? It's a cool scene, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that they wrote into the movie to give the Zulu more honor. I see. Okay. Than, you know, than just as... looking at them and walking off. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. That that's it's a fake scene that they created specifically to make this mm-hmm. film more representative and more honorable. Towards the Zulu warriors. And about 8 o'clock, Lord Chelmsford and his men, who are now coming back from the San Luana battlefield, show up. And that's the end. And that's the end. And then in the movie, they talk about the men who won the Victoria Cross. And there were 11 of them. And there were 11 of them. They don't go into this in the movie, but there's a few reasons why there's so many Victoria Crosses awarded for the Battle of Rorkstrift. One, it's a great battle and these deeds were great. They should not be diminished. But the British just had this massive, massive defeat in San Luana. And so to take away attention from this massive defeat that they had, they issued these medals to these men at Rorkstrift to say like, hey, you know, look at look at this great defense that happened. And look, Look at all these great things. And that I believe that to be partially true. I was reading some things that they were saying like, no, that's not true. Or yes, it is true. Mm-hmm. I, I think it is true. I think it's partially true as to why they... Well, I mean, how many, how many Zulus did they kill? And how many British people were killed? After the battle, the sources vary, like they always do with, with battles. How many wounded and dead and like that. Roughly. The British lost... 17. Okay. But pretty much, I was reading everything that I read said that almost every single soldier was wounded in some way, shape, or form. Right. All of them. Uh, and some of them severely. But 17, 17 died. The Zulu, on the low side, you're going to see 
about 350 dead and about 500 to 700 wounded. On the high side, you're going to see 700 to 800 dead mm -hmm. and 1,000 to 1,200 wounded. They killed a lot of Zulu. This force so, was between three and 5,000 men that attacked them. So that's massive. It's significantly different on both sides. So is that, is that not reason enough for them to be receiving Victoria Crosses for what they've done? It is. So that, that's that's kind of my point, is that when you look at it alone, I mm -hmm. believe that they did deserve these Victoria Crosses for what they did. Was that um, quite unusual, that number? Yes. Yes. But my point being is that the reason that they were issued is to try and bring attention away from what happened to Innocent Luana. Right. Yeah. If it was in an even playing field and everyone was well, that on... that seems a little bit unfair for the guys that won their Victoria Crosses, that people are saying that. Yes, and you see that throughout the rest of their careers, especially the officers. Right. How they're talked down about. Yeah, it's kind of taken away the, from the generals. The significance of their awards. Yes, the generals who gave them their Victoria Crosses mm -hmm. called them you know, uh, things like the daftest officer I'd ever met, or good for good for a lot of things, but not soldiering. I mean, they they talked down to Chard and Bromhead, the rest of their careers right. because they viewed one of them said i can't believe i'm issuing out medals to men who did nothing but their duty like rats fighting Give for their us. lives i mean just jealous pretty much yeah. i think so i think so they were also before this they weren't viewed as that great as soldiers Mm -hmm. Bromhead was... But, I mean, how could they not have been viewed as great soldiers considering what they accomplished like, I, did, I mean, it's crazy to think that people could consider them as um, not very good at what they're doing. No, I agree. And their careers did turn, their military careers took a drastic turn for the better after this. Mm -hmm. The broader military community, I think, accepted them for who they were as, okay. as heroes. Is their direct commanding officers who were there in South Africa for the glory right. that tried to discredit them later on right. is where you kind of see, see these things from. Going past this battle, Anglo-Zulu War does not last very long. It starts in January of 1879. It's done by July of 1879. So the Battle of Insane Luana happens at the morning of the 22nd. Battle of Works Drift happens on the 22nd to the... Which, you know, uh, of which month? January. Okay. And the British fall back and they regroup, especially that middle column that we were talking about, right? They were in three columns. The center column essentially got wiped out, and then the two left and right columns get pinned down by other Zulu armies and besieged. One of them is able to fall back into Natal across the border. The other one is in like a two or three month siege at this fort by the Zulu. The British fall back, they regroup, they get more troops, they reinvade Zululand. There's a couple other defeats that the British get. There's a big supply train that gets attacked. A bunch of British die. There's a small battle. I mean, I say small. It's a medium-sized battle where the British end up retreating as well. They finally get their act together. They relieve the siege of the British soldiers in that, in that first column. And then they proceed to steadily wipe out Zulu army after Zulu army after Zulu army by forming loggers and fortified entrenching places anytime they meet the Zulu and the Zulu try to attack them and they wipe them out. Right. They get to there's a couple really big battles and they kill a ton of Zulu warriors. They get to the battle 
of Alundi, which is the Zulu capital, it's a turkey shoot. They kill so many. They wipe out the Zulu army. And the British lose like 87 men with a few other, you know, wounded or maybe 87 total. I can't, I can't exactly remember, but they wipe out the rest of the Zulu army and they burn down the capital, capture the king and they put an end to the Anglo-Zulu war and incorporate Zululand into the South African Confederacy. Nothing is going right at this point for Freer, who's the governor of this area, and he's trying to bring this grand big picture of the you know South African Confederacy so that he can rule it and get rich and and have all all the glory. Mm-hmm. All the policies that he's making, a lot, especially a lot of the racist ones that we talked about, the disarming all of the native blacks mm-hmm. and things like that. The the country of Lesotho that we were talking about, where you know right on the border where they filmed the movie, right. is a breakaway area from. Because of those laws. Okay. A lot of these native blacks who were like, no, we're not giving up our guns. They retreated into this area. They fought another war there against the British and beat them, at least to a standstill. And they signed a treaty. The, Freer had to sign a treaty with these African tribesmen that said, hey, we're not, this is your territory wow, now. Okay. And that's why Lesotho's its own country okay. in, the, <laughs> in the center of South yeah, Africa. His policies of confederacy and british rule lead to more wars like that and then it leads to the first boer war in the 1880s which is not very long after this is in 1879 in 1881 or 1880 and 1881 they fight the first anglo boer war the boers win that one reestablish their freedom in the transvaal and the orange free state mm-hmm. and freer's removed and general wosley who came down to uh, replace Chelmsford after the battle in San Luana. Mm -hmm. He just didn't get there in time because it takes forever. Chelmsford set off to reestablish and and remake his military reputation and things like that as quickly as possible so that because he knew he was getting replaced. So he does the rest of the Zulu campaign to save his reputation. Wosley gets down there, sacks Chelmsford, sacks Freer. They go go back to England, and then he sets out to making... South Africa, kind of more or less how we we think of it now, from the areas that they controlled. There's all the other the other Boer states had broke broken away, but the things that Freer set in motion in 1877 with those Hosa the frontier wars against the Hosa are directly linked to why they start the Boer wars, and then especially the first Boer war, which in turn leads to the second Boer war which is much more bloody than the second. And the second Boer War is what leads to South Africa from a border standpoint of what it is today because the British will end up conquering those Boer republics and incorporating them into South Africa. So that is kind of all of that wrapped up. What are kind of your your thoughts on it? Um, well, I know a lot more about South African history than I ever did before, which is <laughs> <laughs> quite interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't really know how any, how any of it began and how we, how we got into South Africa. I say we, as in... You mean the, the British? As in the British. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so that's quite interesting. I mean, the movie got a lot right, right? So it's not like you can say, like, oh my goodness, I can't believe they added yeah, this. Yeah, there's or... not so much shock there. Mm-hmm. It's almost, it's almost impre- as impressive seeing what they did knowing that they the movie is portraying it fairly fairly accurate, especially from a battle standpoint. Mm-hmm. You know, they got the the Welsh regiment wrong, and they made you know a couple of the characters a little bit different than they were. But overall, this small group of men defending the small little outpost, you know, regardless of British imperial interests and things like that, the small group of men defending this little little tiny fort against this overly massive army is a heroic thing to portray from just a defending your life standpoint. Because when mm-hmm. you get to a on the battle level, the politics and all that... Yeah, who cares? Who cares? It doesn't matter to the soldiers at that point. Mm-hmm. And so I think they did a good job, especially in 1964 to watching it now. It I think it holds up very well as a, as a movie. Yeah, they wouldn't have done it much differently today, would they? No. I mean, there's a few times where you see the overdramatic stab, you know, where they... Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, know, very theatrical. Very theatrical, like almost like a stage performance. But yes. o- overall, the movie—if you were to remake it today—it wouldn't change all all mm-hmm. that much. Zulu is a great movie on the historical scale. They get a lot right, a few little nitpicky things, but overall, they get a lot. I think it's not really. Um, it's not really a movie I would have picked to watch if it wasn't for you. I mean, you're, it's not you're welcome. I, it's not that I didn't enjoy it. I did enjoy it, but um, I think I should pick the next one. Oh, you do, do you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one thing I, I meant to talk about earlier is the in the movie, the Boer advisor. His name's Lieutenant Adendorf. You know who I'm talking about? Uh, yes, yep. You know, he, he rides in to tell him about the, he's the battle. He's one of the two guys, yeah. Yeah, he's one of the two guys. Mm-hmm. He's the only person to fight at the Battle of Insta Luana and the oh, Battle of Rourke Strip. Now there's those Did he get awarded any medals? No. He did not. Then now there was those native horsemen that fought for a little bit, but then rode away. Mm-hmm. So they weren't at the battle proper, so to speak. He's the only person to fight at both battles and, and serve. For the entire and, thing. For the entire thing. Mm-hmm. And he was written about in wow. dispatches by Lieutenant Chard and Lieutenant Bromhead. You know, praising his advice and his fighting. For some reason, he was discredited by an author later on in life that that claimed that he fled from this battle, and then he must have fled from this battle. And was just trying to credit, discredit his character. And people have come out and said, like, no, that's not true. He he was there and he fought and he was heroic. You know, it, it, so it, it just kind of an interesting little little tidbit. Um, that I, you know, learned learned about whenever, because uh, when I was watching the movie from the beginning, I always thought he just looked cool. He looks yeah. like an old cavalry officer. He's got the slouch yeah, hat. Yeah, I'm the... surprised that they didn't mention that in the, um, you know, the bit at the end when they're talking about the uh, who won which medals. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, another cool little tidbit thing about the movie is there are about 500 Zulu extras to make up this army of three to four thousand Zulus, and. They're all along the perimeters of those hills. Mm-hmm. And when you watch the movie, a lot of times you can't really tell because it's far away. There's a couple scenes that when you look, the way they did that to portray that many more men is they got these boards and they nailed shields to them. 
And so they had like 10 shields on a board and they had two men carrying a shield on either side of that board, carrying it. And they would walk up, they would walk up to the hill. And so it looked like there's thousands of Zulus, but there's really just a few guys carrying long, you know, boards with with shields on them. And then they could take most of the extras and put them in the middle. Mm -hmm. So it looks like there's a whole bunch of them forming up to, forming up to attack, which is a cool little, I mean, like, you know, now it would be like CGI, and you'd be like, "Oh, those are all fake men." But yeah, it's we amazing old school CGI. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, old school CGI <laughs> boards and shields. <laughs> and there, you know, there are still movies that use that, though, aren't there? Like the perspective and the the old tricks instead of just going to CGI, which is yep. cool. I love it when the movies go back to old school, mm-hmm. old school ways. And if it's done well, it looks better than the CGI because it's real. It's yes, ag- exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think that's going to about do it for episode three of the Based on History podcast. If I messed up or I got something wrong or Alexis messed up and Alexis got something wrong. Excuse me? (laughs) Comment on the Instagram page and we'll talk about it at the beginning of next episode in the segment, What John Got Wrong. Don't forget to like and subscribe on Instagram, as well as all the platforms that you're listening to the podcast on. We really appreciate all the support we're getting from everybody. Oh, shout out. We just reached 40 followers on Instagram, so we are moving on up. (laughs) All right, that's going to do it for us.